Hey there, I'm Ange McCormack, the host of Schwartz Media's daily news show, 7am. This is The Weekend Read. Every fortnight on the show, we feature the best long-form writing in Australia, read to you by the people who wrote it. Today on the show, journalist Nicole Hashem with her piece from a recent edition of The Monthly. On top of a hill in a remote Aboriginal community, hours from Alice Springs, is an unmissable sight, a 20-metre-high steel Christian cross. It's a monument that was a decade in the making, cost $2 million to build, and has attracted the interest of Hollywood star Mel Gibson. But it's a project that hasn't been without its controversies. Nicole will read her story, Power and the Glory, The Forgiveness Cross, after a short conversation. Nicole, what drew you to the story of this project, this enormous steel Christian cross erected essentially in the middle of nowhere? Well, I'd heard about the project and the controversy surrounding it. It just seemed to me, for a start, just such an extraordinary development out in a place where there are, you know, few big features in the landscape. I had done a bit of research into what I suppose was the official story around the cross, which was that uh, Aboriginal people in the nearby community of Hasts Bluff had for many years had visions of a cross being built on a mountaintop near their community and that one day they approached a really prominent landscape photographer by the name of Ken Duncan, who had been doing work out in their community for a long time and he's also a Christian, and they'd asked him to help build the cross Uh, And there we go. It was done about 10 years later. But I also know that there were people who believed that the cross was not a good thing for Aboriginal culture, that somehow Ken Duncan had implanted this idea on the Aboriginal people. And I also knew that Central Australia had a really complicated history of colonial relations when it came to the mission movement, uh, among others. And so I really just wanted to go out there and see for myself. And, yeah, Nicole, as you say, there's been a few different types of criticisms and controversies around the project. There's also been questions over whether the money spent on the cross could have been better used in the community where there's, you know, extremely poor living conditions and overcrowding. After spending some time there speaking to people involved in the project, how do you weigh up those criticisms or is it something that you're still sort of thinking about? Well, from the outset, I wanted to go out there with a completely open mind. I didn't think it was my place and I still don't to judge the project or make decisions about who I think came up with the idea or whether it should have been built. People who've read the essay have consistently said to me that they felt really conflicted and not sure how they felt about the whole thing. And I really like that response because I don't think there are any easy answers to this one. But certainly my experience when I was out there was that people who I spoke to at least really welcomed the project. I'm talking about uh, the Indigenous people from Haas Bluff. They said things like, you know, we get big promises made to us all the time from governments and others about how things are going to change for us and nothing ever changes. And this is something that's been delivered for us. And the immediate reaction was one of, I think, hope and even joy that 
they had this monument now. There was this hope that tourists and other people were going to come to the community and things were going to be better. Whether or not that happens is a subject of debate, but my experience in the relatively short time I was there was that people were really excited about it. And what was it like seeing the cross up close? Can you kind of describe it to me and, and how you felt seeing it? So on, on Easter Sunday, I climbed the mountain with some Christian pilgrims and um, up close, it's it, it's big um, and <laughs> it's very solid. Um, it's made of um, a certain type of weathered steel. So it's sort of a rust colour when you get close up to it. I climbed the mountain when it was getting dark in the afternoon. And at that time, if anyone's familiar with Central Australia, everything softens. Um, the the colours in the land really soften. And so at that time of day, this cross, the symmetry and the I suppose the power that it represents were even more compelling, I suppose. And I mean, you get a sense of how difficult for a start it was to even build the thing. It was put into a granite mountaintop, which is very hard rock. You know, there's very little infrastructure around there. So even getting machinery and things up on the mountain, getting materials up there was very difficult. And you got a real sense of why this thing took so long. But seeing the cross from down below was probably more of an arresting sight for me because it stands out so much on the landscape. And when you're up there, um, for me, as amazing as the cross is, you're also standing looking out over the McDonnell Ranges and and the plains and all the mountains around it and all the Dreamtime stories. There were Aboriginal guides there explaining different features in the landscape. So um, in a way, once I was up there, I was struck more by the power of the landscape as a whole. Nicole, thanks so much for your time and thanks for writing your essay. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, Nicole Hashem will read Power and the Glory, The Forgiveness Cross. The Saturday Paper's food editors are some of the country's leading chefs, including Andrew McConnell, Otama Carey, David Moyle and Karen Martini. Let them guide your cooking when you sign up to Schwartz Media's free weekly newsletter, The Food. It features the latest recipe from the Saturday paper, along with a selection of seasonal dishes suitable for all cooks. Subscribe today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Power and the Glory, the Forgiveness Cross. Ken Duncan runs his palm flush down the rippling trunk of a ghost gum. He turns to the group before him and holds up his hand. See this powder, he asks, showing them an ivory chalk on his fingers. It's a natural sunscreen. Duncan rubs the powder onto his forearm. The tree's so white, it needs protection. The Aboriginals, if they needed sunscreen, they used this off the tree. The onlookers, Christian pilgrims on a tour, murmur in appreciation at the display of Bushnaus. Now let's get everyone over there, Duncan says, so we can get a photo of you all. The 50-odd people in broad-brimmed hats traipse willingly to the water's edge. We're at Ormiston Gorge, west of Alice Springs, in the McDonnell Ranges, Chiricha. Duncan, one of Australia's best-known landscape photographers and an ardent Christian, is in a big mood. Tonight will bring the culmination of more than a decade's work by him and many others, 
the official launch of a 20-metre-high, brightly lit Christian cross on top of a remote mountain not far from here. It's arguably one of the most improbable developments ever to get off the ground in Outback Australia. Duncan, 68, spearheaded the multi-million dollar project, working with Christians from the Aboriginal community of Hasts Bluff, Akunji. Tonight, on Good Friday, lights on the cross will be turned on for the first time. The pilgrims, hailing from various denominations across Australia, have come to witness the event. Duncan sets up his camera and assembles the group for a photo, jumping into the frame at the last moment. Say Jesus, a woman from the group instructs brightly. The Hasts Bluff Aboriginal community lies 225 kilometres by road west of Alice Springs, near a rocky outcrop of the same name. Since the 1990s, Duncan has travelled here regularly from his home on the New South Wales Central Coast to perform charity work and run youth workshops. He says an Akunji elder, the late Nebo Jugadai, first mentioned the idea of the cross to him two decades ago. As the story goes, for years, locals had experienced visions of a cross on the nearby mountain. Some saw angels climbing up and down between heaven and earth. In 2009, Duncan says, a group of elders decided the cross must be built. They asked him to help. I said, oh, that's great. A couple of four by twos, a couple of bags of cement, and away you go. It's your land. Do it. I didn't understand why they would need my help, Duncan says, but he agreed to pitch in anyway. The scope of the project grew. What was initially a timber post and crossbar became a $2 million steel monolith and a boardwalk to the summit. Duncan sent letters to 640 churches across Australia asking for financial contributions. Just three responded, one of them his own. So Duncan raised the money from private donors. He gathered a team of administrators and volunteers, builders and engineers. Together with the Aboriginal community, they navigated COVID and the bureaucracy. They persevered despite opposition. They prayed and prayed. God's just been so amazing in how he's provided the right people at the right time, Duncan tells the pilgrims, many of whom donated time and money to the cause. He probably figured the impact of the cross is so big he needs to make it a bit easier for us, you know? The idea for the monument, dubbed the Forgiveness Cross, may have sprung from the Aboriginal community, but it wouldn't have happened without Duncan. He's white, well-connected and a prolific artist. His back catalogue spans more than 200,000 photographs, mostly resplendent landscape panoramas, reputedly owned by royalty, movie stars, spiritual leaders and political figures. Duncan's customers include former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who visited his gallery during the 2019 federal election campaign and brought a print of an eagle in flight. Morrison later described the image as a message from God and said it spurred him to electoral victory. Duncan counts actor Mel Gibson as a close friend. At Hast's Bluff, kids call Duncan the famous photo man. The Cross Project has detractors. Some doubt Duncan's version of how the Cross Project originated and refer to it as Ken's Cross. Critics include Paul Traeger, a long-time Lutheran church worker in the region. Speaking to the Australian newspaper in 2016, Traeger said, The burden of proof is on him, Duncan, to show that the idea of the giant cross wasn't just implanted by him on the Aboriginal people. Ken is probably the hardest person to say no to that I've ever met. Duncan vehemently denies that he's some kind of religious overlord. At Ormiston Gorge, 
he tells the pilgrims of taking Akunji elders to the top of the mountain to see the finished cross. They were in tears, Duncan says. They said, Ken, we've had so many promises made to us by governments and bureaucracies, and none of them have ever come to pass, but this is our vision, and here it is in front of us. Duncan believes the cross is the start of a Christian revival, starting at the heart of Australia and spreading across the continent. There's no doubt about it, he says. The cross is lifting up the name of Jesus over the nation. It's getting on for midday. The sun is high. The gilt-edged waterhole beckons the pilgrims to its depths. Before the group disperses for a swim, Duncan tells them to take an open mind and heart to tonight's launch. There, he says, they must all, quote, put aside what we think God should be and just allow ourselves to be blown by the wind, be ready for anything. In the beginning, an emu travelled the land. He was tall and strong, the most important of all the emus. He walked alone from the east, then stopped to rest. Other emus joined him. They celebrated and laid eggs. One day, the emu rose. It was time to leave. According to Ikunji people, those who walk around the mountain and its cross are following the emu's tracks. The mountain itself, bulbous and bare, is the body of the bird. Its long neck reaches across the spinifex plains. The red quartzite outcrop, known as Hast's Bluff, is the great bird's head. This region was first visited by Europeans in 1872. Pastoralists arrived soon after, stocking the land with cattle and seizing scarce water supplies. By 1903, every centimetre of what's now known as the Northern Territory was leased to non-Indigenous people. Aboriginal people were forced off their land, often with prodigious violence, and into stations, reserves and Christian missions. Their traditional ways of life were upended. About 160 kilometres north of Hast's Bluff is the site of the 1928 Coniston Massacre, where Aboriginal people were slaughtered by white police and civilians. The official death toll was 31, but the real number may have been as many as 200. Hast's Bluff was established in the early 1940s as a rations depot and Indigenous reserve. Today, it has a population of about 120 people, who variously speak Laritja, Western Aranda, Pintupi and Walpuri. The vast majority of residents identify as Christian. It has the basic hallmarks of a town, a school, a grocery store, and a small church made of corrugated iron. The Kunji Artist Centre produces internationally renowned textiles and paintings. There's no permanent police or medical service. Both are provided from Papanya, a 45-minute drive away. People come and go via a rough dirt road. After rain, its orange puddles can swallow a car. In 2017, the ABC reported claims that Indigenous people at Hast's Bluff were paying rent for substandard homes not fit for humans. Residents complained about overcrowding, leaking roofs and failing electricity. Raw sewage was overflowing and potentially causing illness. One woman reported sharing her two-bedroom home with 12 people, including the local pastor, who slept on a bed fashioned from tyres and timber crates. At the site of the cross's launch, Akunji elder Douglas Malta is standing under a white plastic gazebo. The cross rises on the mountain behind him, like a dagger thrust into a crouching beast. Malta is telling the emu story to the pilgrims. 
his hands sweeping as he traces the birds' parade across the land. From here, he travelled west, past the WA border, Malta says. The emu dreaming ends where we stand. Malta is one of several elders who implored Duncan to help make the cross a reality. The mountain the cross stands on is called Kakalnapuli in the local Lurcha language. It has several non-Indigenous names, but is usually referred to as Memory Mountain, after a stone memorial built at its base that recognises a group of Indigenous Lutheran missionaries who travelled to the area in 1923 to introduce the Gospel. By coincidence, or perhaps God's timing, the cross launch comes 100 years since Christianity arrived. Standing beside Malta is his aunt, former Northern Territory Cabinet Minister Alison Anderson. Once a Labour member before joining the Country Liberals and then Palmer United, she says the cross offers her people a better future. Because without this, there's no economic opportunities in these communities, she says. So if the spiritual part of it can draw more people to the cross, then the community benefits from it. Selling artwork, employment, all that kind of stuff. Anderson tells the group of pilgrims, mostly white people from Sydney and surrounds, that while they, quote, live two, three, four to a house, we live 20. If you've got 20 hands turning the tap on, of course you're going to have corrosion. If you've got 20 bums sitting on the toilet, you're going to have blockages. That's what happens. Anderson says the community was promised new homes years ago, but the Territory government hasn't yet delivered. She got out of politics, quote, for the simple reason I could not make change for my people. The cross may be built, but amenities at Hast's Bluff remain, for the most part, rudimentary. Plans are afoot for a kiosk, toilets, glamping facilities and horse riding tours at the mountain's base. But all of that's a long way off, as are the hordes of tourists the community is counting on. Duncan describes the cross as God's project. If that's true, God must meet some serious deliverables before the Akunji community realises its dream of financial independence. The pilgrims are sweltering under the gazebo. Anderson wraps up the talk and points to a group of Indigenous women stoking coals nearby. The ladies over there are going to be cooking kangaroo tail, Anderson says. Everyone can go taste it. Some people I speak to, who are not from Hast's Bluff, suggests the $2 million spent on the cross project would have been better directed to raising living standards for the community's Indigenous people. But Scott McConnell, a former Labor-turned-independent member for the region in the NT Parliament, rejects that view. He's not Christian or Indigenous, and he thinks the supposed economic benefits to flow from the cross are overstated. But, he says it's the job of governments to enable Indigenous communities to live on country. The Commonwealth of Australia should support those people living on their ancestral land, practising their law, language and culture, he tells me over coffee in Alice Springs before the cross launch. Just because governments were failing to meet their responsibilities, McConnell says, quote, I don't think it's right for us to criticise Christians for spending money on a cross. McConnell, a former resident of Hast's Bluff, says some Indigenous people in the community don't support the project. That view is echoed by Paul Traeger, a Lutheran church support worker who speaks Pintupi Luritja and has worked in the region for 22 years. He refers to a purported cultural tendency known as gratuitous concurrence, by which some Aboriginal people may, for cultural or social reasons, 
agree with propositions they don't actually support or understand. Certainly there would be a number of people in Hast's Bluff who would not want to be associated closely with the cross, Traeger tells me, adding there had been, quote, fights in the community over this. But in any case, he says, the cross is there now and we have to live with the reality of that. Both McConnell and Traeger say dissenters aren't willing to speak out. Whether or not that's the case, Indigenous people I spoke to at Hast's Bluff universally welcomed the cross project. Isaiah Larry, 24, who is employed as a visitor guide, said it was a big story for us. It's something special and new, and it's going to change things for the next generation, Larry says. More talking and more stories and more confidence for the community, because around the world, more people will be coming and from around Australia. Kieran Malta, 35, is Douglas Malta's son. He retells the story about the emu's body in the land and, laughing, includes an extra detail. The cross is in his bum. Malta Jr. is married with children and says he can, quote, look after the family really good thanks to his ongoing job on the project. I can save up, he says. Last year I took my family to Adelaide for Christmas and New Year's and we drove back with a new car. Back at the base of Memory Mountain, the sun tacks west along the emu's path. Evening is approaching. The cross blackens into stark silhouette against a lavender sky. Soon it will be lit for the first time. Many of the pilgrims sought refuge from the day's heat in the shade cast by the tour bus. Now they venture out, taking a seat in plastic chairs in front of a small stage. The space is filling up. Indigenous people from Hast's Bluff and nearby communities arrive in herds of four-wheel drives, horns beeping jubilantly. They're joined by caravanners, grey nomads and people who've driven out from Alice Springs, both the Christian and the merely curious. Rugs are laid between tufts of spinifex. Kids find each other in the throng. Someone brought a ball. They congregate beneath floodlights, a whirl of shrieks and limbs and rumpled hair, kicking up puffs of dust as the sun ebbs. Dark engulfs the desert. The night's MC, television stalwart Ray Martin, takes the stage. His suave, news anchor voice brings a certain panache to the otherwise casual proceedings. Martin is a friend of Ken Duncan's and volunteered on the board that oversaw the cross project. Everyone told us it was impossible, but have a look at what's behind us now, he tells the crowd. Speeches ensue, including one by NT Chief Minister Natasha Files. Duncan takes the stage to rattle off a long list of thank yous. Finally, it's time. Now, Duncan says to the expectant crowd, would anyone like to see the cross lit up? People whistle and cheer. Douglas Malta, standing beside Duncan, takes the microphone. After a climactic pause, he exclaims, Let there be light! Eyes strain towards the cross. A switch is flicked. White light floods the cross from the base to the tip, then spreads in a perfect fan across the expanse of black. We stand in stunned silence. Christian or not, it's an arresting sight. A woman calls out, Yeah, Jesus! And people in the crowd begin to cry and embrace. The mountain has dissolved into the night. All that's left is the cross, floating lucent in the sky like a miracle. Before Mel Gibson visited Memory Mountain in March 2016, the elders issued strict instructions to the community. Just leave this man alone. Treat him like family. 
the Hollywood heavyweight had just finished directing the war drama Hacksaw Ridge. Duncan says Gibson visited Hast's bluff with his girlfriend to, quote, get away and experience some peace. Mel came in, he was into it. He ate witchetty grubs, he ate kangaroo tail like it was corn on the cob. The two men climbed the mountain and sat where the cross would one day stand. As we sat there, a huge eagle just started soaring above us, Duncan says. We're going, man, check that out. Duncan and Gibson are firm friends. Duncan attended the Los Angeles wedding of Gibson's daughter and was the official photographer on the set of Gibson's 2004 biblical blockbuster, The Passion of the Christ. The men met as youths through their girlfriends at the time. We lost the girls, but we stayed friends, Duncan tells me. Gibson's presence in Central Australia raised eyebrows. He's an ultra-Orthodox Catholic, known for his controversial views on the Vatican, among others. Was he bankrolling the cross at Memory Mountain? Would it be the set for A Passion of the Christ sequel? Duncan scoffs at such suggestions and denies Gibson was officially involved in the project. A helmet and sword from The Passion of the Christ film set were reportedly offered to the first two people to donate more than $100,000 to the cause. They were displayed in a case signed by Gibson. But Duncan says he personally owned the memorabilia. Gibson didn't attend the cross launch. Duncan says it would have been a distraction and, quote, he'll come later. Duncan is clearly tired of suggestions the cross is another colonial project foisted upon Indigenous people by powerful white men. He says the Central Land Council, which represents 15 Aboriginal language groups, undertook years of Indigenous consultation before the project proceeded and, quote, no one will ever be able to say that this was a white man's vision. Akunji elders themselves say the cross was their idea. In any case, success has many fathers, including, if you're a believer, the heavenly one. But Christianity's influence on First Nations peoples has been dark at times. For some, that colonial legacy has never been properly dealt with. In the 19th and 20th centuries, many Indigenous people were forced onto missions to be converted to Christianity. The Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies says the missions were, quote, designed to erase people's cultural identity. Basic human rights were ignored and many abuses took place. Christianity arrived in Central Australia in 1877 when the Lutheran Church established the Hermansburg Mission, west of Alice Springs. Hast's Bluff later became a mission outpost. Hermansburg harboured Aboriginal people during the period of violent frontier clashes between Indigenous people and pastoralists. But whitewashing occurred. Indigenous children were separated from their parents so they could more easily be, quote, civilised and converted to Christianity. According to one account, men carrying out traditional ceremonies were branded children of the devil. Hermansburg continued until 1982, when the church finally gave up its lease and returned the land to its rightful Aboriginal owners. Across Australia, Indigenous people, their cultures and spirituality survived despite the disruption and trauma of the mission era. At Hast's Bluff, a young Akunji man told me Christianity and traditional belief systems can coexist. God created songlines and dreaming as well, he says. It doesn't matter, we can be Christian and we can still have our dreaming stories. Duncan, however, warns about the potential dangers of mixing belief systems. He tells of being, quote, initiated by elders 
as a young man living in the Kimberley. Of the dream time, he says, there's good things in it, but there's bad. At Memory Mountain, stories abound of strange spiritual happenings, dark forces seeking to wrest Aboriginal souls back from Christianity. I was told of black magic, demonic portals, and witch doctors performing evil business. One person intimately involved in the cross project told me of finding a rock wrapped in string and hanging from a half-built boardwalk on Memory Mountain. It was considered a curse and cut off immediately. Another day, talismanic objects were left hanging from trees along the road leading to the mountain. Duncan says that, whether people believe it or not, the spiritual realm exists and it's a battle between, quote, good and evil. He assures the pilgrims, we are in spiritual warfare, but don't worry because our God is a lot bigger. The cross, he says, is part of breaking the stronghold. It's like God has put a battle standard at the heart of the nation and said, enough, game on. It's the evening of Easter Saturday. People have gathered at the base of Memory Mountain for another special event, a sermon by a high-profile American evangelist known as the machine gun preacher. Miracles are expected. If you believe his publicity, the preacher, whose real name is Sam Childers, is a former criminal who found God, travelled to Africa and began conducting armed raids to rescue orphans from Sudan's civil war. Now he owns five orphanages, a security firm and a motorbike shop. His story was turned into a 2011 film starring Scottish actor Gerard Butler. Childers, who was on a speaking tour of Australia, heard about the cross and wanted to see it for himself. He offered to deliver a sermon and waive his usual appearance fee. Childers stands in front of the stage in a black shirt and jeans, his long silver hair pulled into a ponytail. After a bit of banter, he gets straight to it. He cites a line from the book of Proverbs. Where there is no vision, the people perish. See, the problem with us, we've lost the vision, Childers yells into the microphone in a Pennsylvanian drawl. He recounts a few didactic lessons from his own life story. I want to tell you all, from the youngest to the oldest, you can be whatever you want to be. Over half an hour, Childers paces back and forth, delivering a stream of parable and moral instruction. Then it's time to pray. He calls for people to come to the stage. Anybody that needs a healing from God, needs to be delivered from disease, if you need to be healed of cancer, need to be delivered of anxiety, come on. About 30 people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, amble to the stage. Childers asks for any pastors present to lend a hand. Some miracle seekers face the illuminated cross with raised palms. Others sway, their eyes closed. Childers is speaking feverishly now. Father, in the name of your son, Jesus, we come to you today broken. We come to you today lost. Father, we come to you today hurting. Father, you showed yourself on that mountain and we are asking right now that you begin to heal your people. Father, we know a revival is about to come across this land and it's going to begin here tonight. Pastors lay hands on foreheads as Childers continues his ecstatic entreaties to the heavens. A woman, overcome, crumples to the ground. On stage, a band breaks into the opening strains of Amazing Grace and the voices of the lost and the broken rise up from the night. The McDonald Ranges Drucha rise and fall in sinewy folds for more than 600 kilometres 
an unlikely uplift in the middle of the flattest continent on Earth. The range reaches its zenith just east of Haast's Bluff at Mount Zeal, the Northern Territory's highest peak. Among its peers, Memory Mountain is a small but not unspectacular landform, a gently rising cone topped with a ball of quartzite into which the cross was sunk. On Easter Sunday, I join a group of pilgrims climbing the mountain for the first time. It's late afternoon when we start out, threading upwards through the swirls of green scrub. As we ascend, the landscape opens up, vast plains, bordered by the twisted rope of the range, the whole scene lathered in rosy light. Soon, the cross looms into view. It's a commanding sight, all symmetry and steel, imbued with countless tangled truths, old and new. The pilgrims pose for photos at the base. A few days earlier, I'd asked Douglas Malta why Kunji elders called the project the Forgiveness Cross. The damage wrought by colonialism is manifold here, but Malta says the cross is a symbol of togetherness. What the white people did in the past, with this cross here we forgive them for what they've done to our country, he says. We've just got to go forward and be united as one. The last dazzle of sun slips away. The pilgrims descend in the dark and return to the base of the mountain for the final night of festivities. On stage, an Indigenous singing group is performing Christian worship songs. Duncan advises the pilgrims on how to experience the show, known as a sing-along. Just lay back and look at the stars. Let it wash over you. Don't analyse it. Don't intellectualise it. If you've got questions for God, just throw them up. See what happens. Pastor Amos Egan, a Walpuri Laritcha man from Papunya, is leading the group in heartfelt song. He later says the cross celebrations have been a welcome relief from the hardships Indigenous communities grapple with. If you stay here long enough, you'll see what's happening, Egan tells me. The families go through a rough time because you get grog and drugs and all that, and just division in the family. This weekend, everybody just gets their mind off it, you know? The kids are jumping around happy. It reminds people we should all be together as a family, as God's family. As we chat, Egan spots Ray Martin wandering through the crowd and gasps at the celebrity in our midst. We approach Martin to say hello. Egan shakes his hand, open-mouthed in disbelief. Ray, I'm lost for words, he says. Years ago, growing up, I used to turn the TV on and I'd see this fella talking on the midday show. And now I'm here, like, face to face with this bloke. Wow. It's a big weekend for dreams coming to life. Martin is polite and deferential. He pats Egan's arm reassuringly. The men chat and the subject turns to the cross, which Martin concedes he thought would never happen. When the lights went on the other night, I thought, they'll go off and the cross will disappear, Martin says. It was almost too good to be true. I offer to take a photo of the two men. Egan races off to get his phone and arrives back, puffing. They stand side by side and I hold up Egan's phone to capture the moment. The men are in shadow, but they step forward together, leaning into the light. Above, the cross is hovering and luminous, inviting the angels to descend. The mountain range is just a black contour now, a cursive scrawled along the horizon.
To hear more Weekend Reads, you can subscribe to The Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.